Well, I understand that that Exodus passage has some uh, difficult words about slavery and how slavery uh, was a part of life in Old Testament Israel. Um, We aren't going to be able to unpack that in detail. Um, I have preached on that passage in the past. So if you're troubled by what we read there, uh, you can consult our sermons online on our website. And we try to explain how the redemption worked worked by God in Israel actually was transforming in a rather positive manner an institution that existed in that world then. In a similar manner, we want to turn to Paul's instruction now in Ephesians 6. And in our outline, first we'll we'll consider the broad idea of slavery and the gospel. Second, we'll look at his instructions for Christian slaves and his third instructions for Christian masters. So that's our outline this morning. And we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, beginning on page 979. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Join me in our prayer found in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Slavery in the Bible is a difficult topic to address in one sermon. But I think a good place to start is with the story of the slave named Onesimus. And uh, you can be forgiven if you don't know uh, by heart or by memory the story of Onesimus. And the story comes down to us in a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the owner of Onesimus, Philemon. Uh, This is one of those tiny uh, one-page books in the New Testament that you can skip over quite quickly and probably don't pay a lot of attention to. Now, Onesimus was probably born into slavery. Uh, This is the guess of most commentators on the text because his name, Onesimus, means useless. Not many parents give their own children the name useless, but apparently it was a name that would be given to slaves um, in a bit of harshness, I might add. And as I said, it's one of these short letters that we've probably heard about, but maybe don't hold in the front of our mind. And I think this letter is remarkable because it's a personal letter from Paul to an individual. And he does write to other individuals, to Timothy, to Titus. But these men were ministry partners. Whereas this individual has a much more sort of individual role in the life of the church. He's a relatively ordinary, though prominent, member of the Christian church at Colossae. And there's a a, a worshiping community that meets in his home, which means that it was probably a large household, a large home. And the reason that Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, the master of Onesimus, um, 
is because Onesimus had come to know Paul. That Onesimus had come to be saved by Paul. And he wants to send Onesimus back to Philemon. How he came into the role and the nature of his ownership is unclear. But what is clear is that he possesses some legal rights over Onesimus. So I'm going to read this letter. It's short, but I think it's worth reading in full. As we frame up our thoughts about how the gospel transforms slavery. Paul, um, by the way, this is on page 1000 of, of your pew Bibles if you want to open to it. It's just one short page. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Now, he addresses it to all these people, but it's standard in ancient letter writing. The first person is the real addressee, and he speaks about you in the second person singular throughout the letter. So he's referring to the behavior of Philemon. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed from you. So he's honoring Philemon's faith and his love as he showers it upon every member, every saint in the body of Christ. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Paul's an apostle. He can issue divine commands. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He repeats it for the second time. I'm in prison for the gospel. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He became converted under Paul's ministry. He was a father in the faith to him. Formerly, he was useless to you. Paul is riffing on his name. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. Sending you my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So he's saying, he's your slave. He could have served me for you because I know you would have served me if you were here. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. I can't force you to love another member of the body of Christ. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Listen to this. No longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner... Koinonia, if you consider me your fellow minister, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. He's signing a blank check. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. 
Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So you see, brothers and sisters, it's true, the saying, you've probably heard it, the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Onesimus, now, Paul says, is no longer a slave. He's more than a slave. He's a brother. The gospel has transformed the relationship between Onesimus and another man who owns him. Onesimus was formerly useless. He probably ran away. He's a thief. Who knows what he took? Now he has become useful. The gospel brings obedience. You see how Paul can presume upon a fellow brother in Christ to do the right thing, to love all the saints in the church, even slaves. And it brings gratitude. Paul is confident that Philemon would obey his apostolic command, yet he doesn't want him to merely obey him. He wants him to love his former slave and set him free. The difficulty here for us believers in the 21st century, however, is notice how the gospel changes slavery. Not by force of power. Paul says, I don't want you to do something under compulsion of will. Not by dismantling the legal code or the property rights or obligations of slaves and slave owners. It seems horribly offensive for us on the far end of of our nation's history. Difficult wrestling with slavery for hundreds of years. The gospel does not force the world to stop behaving in a worldly fashion. It doesn't impose, it cannot impose the love of Christ on those who don't have Christ as their master and Lord in heaven. So the question for us, I think one of the difficult questions is, why does Paul in the New Testament appear to leave slavery in place? Even as we saw the Lord in the Old Testament in Exodus 21 left slavery in place. John Calvin in his sermon on this notes that there are are two reasons why this happens. First he says, and he goes on for pages about how horrific slavery is, what a great sin it is. And he says it's a horrible fruit of sin in the fall. But he says, it is one of many institutions in a fallen world brought on by the sin of Adam, brought on by the curse of God. And it is a part of the subjection that all creation bears as a result of sin. Again, slavery in the ancient world, slavery in the 16th century world of John Calvin, slavery takes many shapes and forms. One of the most common forms of slavery in the ancient world was when you conquered an enemy foe on the battlefield. Instead of killing all the enemy soldiers... You offered them their life, a lifetime of slavery. Slavery was, in one sense, uh, not chattel slavery, not the buying and selling of, of folks, but in its origination, it was a way to serve and show mercy on the battlefield. And we might think that's a horrific practice, but such as it was in the ancient world. So that's the first thing to note, that slavery was a, a part of the world as much as our market economy, as much as uh, financial indebtedness is in a capital world, which can be a kind of a form of slavery, not to 
completely draw an analogy between the two. Many of us show up at work on Monday morning. We must, if we want to keep that job, if we want to continue to earn the money that we provide for ourselves. Obviously, engaging in a free market is very different from being owned as Onesimus was. But I think John Calvin's second point is what I want to focus on here. Because he talks about the gospel. And he writes in his sermon, he preaches, The gospel is not brought in to change the common politics of the world and to make laws that belong to the temporal state. In other words, the gospel transforms Philemon. It transforms Onesimus. It transforms relations within the kingdom of God and between believers and the world. And so Calvin continues, It is true that kings and princes and magistrates ought always to ask counsel at God's mouth and to conform themselves to his word. He's assuming these are are Christian kings and princes. They should, if they are Christians, put in force Christian laws as much as possible. But our Lord has given them liberty to make such laws as they shall perceive to be fitting and suitable. They must call upon God to give them wisdom. They must take counsel from God's word. Nevertheless, the doctrine of salvation, which we call the kingdom of heaven, and all the things that belong, uh, and the things that belong to the restraint of the sin of the world that men may know, are different matters. In other words, the gospel is different from politics. And this, therefore, is why Paul left servitude as it was. It wasn't Paul's job or brief to change the laws of the Roman Empire. Obviously, he didn't have the power to do so. But it was his job to preach the gospel and to change how slaves and masters related to one another, related to their status of bondage. The gospel is the inbreaking of an eternal kingdom of God into this temporal sphere. And that inbreaking occurs in the life of the church. It will change the temporal state insofar as princes and members of this church become believers and go out and enact more just laws. But there is a difference between the doctrine of salvation, the gospel, and the civil laws which restrain us in this world, the common politics. So notice Paul's instructions to the Ephesians, coming back to the text before us, to Christian slaves and Christian masters. He distinguishes between earthly masters and the one true master in heaven. His expression here is actually masters according to the flesh. The word here for master throughout this passage is the word, the same word for Lord. Lord. You have lords after the flesh. And you have a lord in heaven. Earthly lords versus the heavenly lord. And Paul continually talks about our service to Christ. He refers to Christ twice. And three more times he calls Jesus Christ our lord. The gospel makes all believers, Paul is telling us here, slaves of Christ. And as we, we turn to this text in a little bit more detail in a moment, the word here for bondservant is doulos. It's the word throughout the New Testament, the same word. It occurs over 130 times. It's a slave. It could be translated in many different ways. Bondservant sounds a little nicer than slave. But it's the same word throughout the New Testament. The gospel makes us all slaves of Christ. It turns all our obedience and service into service of Christ. In other words, the gospel doesn't have to transform the common politics of the world to transform our relationship to it. By reorienting us to our heavenly Lord, 
by purchasing us all out of our bondage to sin and death with his precious blood. Christ has made us not our own, but servants, slaves in the household of God. So whether we occupy the station of a Lord or a servant in this world, we all have one Lord above. And again, this is the language of of the Exodus, right? I'm the Lord your God who delivered you, saved you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. It's funny when the Jews are talking to Jesus, they say, which one of us has ever been a slave? And of course, they all were slaves in Egypt, according to their inheritance. And when they're saved in the Exodus, they are saved. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Set my, let my people go so they may serve me. Same word for bondage, for service, that they may worship me at that mountain that I will show them. So the question is, the Old Testament question is, are you a servant? Are you a slave to sin and death and to the world and the things of the flesh? Are you a slave of Yahweh, of God, of your creator? This is why Paul can instruct the Corinthians in a similar vein to remain in the station in which they were called. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. There was a surgery in the ancient world to reverse your circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything. Nor uncircumcision. But keeping the commandments of God. And then he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant? Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. Well, you might say, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. It's better to be free than a slave. If you can buy your freedom, if you can be set free, as Paul urged for Onesimus, do it. But then he says, for he who was called in the Lord... As a slave is a freedman of the Lord. All slaves are free in Christ. And he who was called when free is a bondservant of Christ. All free men are slaves in Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. The idea of redemption is here. You were bought with a price. It's the language of purchasing a slave out of a marketplace. That's the gospel truth for all of us. And this is why Paul can write that in Christ, there is neither slave nor free. Galatians and elsewhere. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now this does not mean, as it's often applied today, that there's no such distinction between male and female, obviously. This doesn't mean that there's no distinction between slave and free in the world. Or that all distinctions are erased. And it's clear from Paul's teaching that wives and husbands have different roles in marriage. Rather, what it means is that in the household of God, all slaves are free in Christ. All free are slaves in Christ. Our status before the Lord is the same. So that's a big picture of how the gospel speaks to the issue of slavery. And it probably doesn't satisfy our political longings or urgings in the 21st century. 
where we rightly have condemned slavery as an institution that should no longer exist. Of course, tragically, we know that it still continues to exist in many corners of the world. Many global trackers of freedom acknowledge that there are a vast amount of slavery, perhaps as much now as ever. But let's turn now to Paul's instructions for Christian slaves in our text in Ephesians. The word servant here, bond servant, as it's translated in our Pew Bible, occurs about 130 times in the New Testament. Think of all the times in the parables when Jesus is talking about the servants of the household. Those are slaves. And it can be translated either servant or slave. And it it covers a whole range of different relationships. And of course, this same word occurs hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Probably more, more than 700 times. The servant is a prominent role. And again, Israel themselves were all slaves in Egypt. And in the New Testament, we see Paul embracing this language. Paul says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus, Romans 1. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart. He said, regard us all as slaves of Christ, 1 Corinthians 4. Galatians 1.10. And notice how it affects his relation before other men. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ. Paul says, I have one job here on earth. It's to serve my heavenly master. Paul and Timothy are slaves of Christ. And we see in Philippians uh, that uh, Jesus himself took the form of a slave. He speaks of Epaphras in Colossians 4.12 as a slave of Christ. Now, we want to be very careful that this is not a precise parallel to our workplace today. Uh, These are household relations in the ancient world. And Paul is probably addressing and using as his framework mostly the urban context in the ancient Mediterranean world in in Greece and Rome uh, where slaves did household tasks and chores. And there was also sort of a more rural farmland country context where slaves did a very hard labor in the fields. And that could be a very different condition. So this is a, a massive topic. In one sense, Paul's instruction about slavery is far more radical in the New Testament context than in ours. And we might want to draw some principles here for how we behave in the workplace. But we need to acknowledge that we are socially in a vastly different circumstance than these individuals were that he is addressing. But there are three ways where the slave, the Christian slave, is transformed in their relationship to their calling and status. And I would say that, first of all, that it transforms our understanding of who we are, the value and character of the individual who is humiliated in this role as a servant or a slave. Paul underscores the transformation of the gospel by addressing slaves first. This is radical. Again, he's addressing as moral agents, as members of the church, people who are nothing in their society and in their culture. Um, Some time ago, we watched Downton Abbey as a family. I've probably seen it more than once. And think of, of that household situation in an English country house, right? Where the slaves were virtually not to speak, not to be seen. You pretend they're not even there unless they're addressed first of all. They're not members of the household. And Paul just radically turns that whole power structure upside down by addressing slaves first. 
And he speaks at much greater length to them than he does to their masters. And when he does turn to masters later, he says, do exactly what I told them. (laughs) Think of how humbling that would have been to someone who thought of themselves as just morally superior. And there's an absolute reversal of worldly power structures here in the gospel. The Lord and master of the slave are the same Lord for everyone else who is in heaven. Heaven, Paul says, is the place of judgment. And God doesn't regard persons. He doesn't regard whether you're a slave or a Lord here on earth. He doesn't care who you work for, how much you make, or what you drive. Everything that the world slaves after, that the world pursues, he says, is nothing. In God's eyes, your station in life is irrelevant. And of course, this is akin to when Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this, as I've mentioned before in the sermon on that parable, is not necessarily good news for everyone. (laughs) It is a radical upheaval of the social order as we understand it. It's really good news for those who are downtrodden. For those who occupy humble stations. It could be bad news for those who think that because of their worldly stature. They have been blessed abundantly. And they have a special place in God's kingdom or in the world's eyes. It's interesting to think. As Paul addresses Philemon here, right? That the house that hosted a church in Colossae. Could have been a household that was run partly by slaves. I don't know. We don't, we don't have this information, right? But like if Philemon owned a large enough house to host the church, his wealth could have been garnered from slave labor. It's kind of like the idea of if the largest donor to a, a small church or to a Christian denomination, right? Had unseemly uh, basis for earning that wealth. And Paul is saying that none of that matters. When James writes to the church, he says, don't take that wealthy person and treat them special and put them in the front row of the church. That kind of partiality has no place in the household of God. And it can't be denied that the gospel of Jesus Christ is far, far sweeter to the downtrodden. Not because it merely brings earthly emancipation. It doesn't always do so. As Paul tells the slave to remain where he is to obey his master, to bear the stripes of injustice and injury, he's telling them that they are free in Christ, that their good works will not be ignored, that they will be rewarded in their heavenly inheritance, though in chains they are free. And Paul says the same thing about his own imprisonment. I am free in Christ. And Jesus warns about the difficulty of a rich man entering heaven. Because the rich man has so much. Don't let thorns grow up around your faith. Don't get lazy in the pursuit of holiness. Don't look to your own stature. Your own inheritance. Your own wealth. As a reason why you don't need to pursue the things of God in this world. Jesus warns. Do not take comfort in the things of this world. So. The gospel transforms the individual. Our identity. Whatever station in life we're in, it gives us a new relation to our Lord in heaven. But the gospel also transforms the character of our calling in the world. Our understanding of why it is that I find myself this day in this place laboring in this way. 
God has called us all to serve him in the place we are in. And so our service should be with fear and trembling, he says, with a sincere heart as though we were serving Christ himself. It's not bad luck or blind faith that has put you in an unpleasing circumstance or a rather unjust or wicked circumstance of slavery, as the case may be. God is sovereign. God is in heaven. And Paul says, you have been called to honor and glorify him wherever you are. We should not be people pleasers in the workplace. We should seek to please Christ. Christ knows what's in our hearts. If we grumble and complain about our callings in this world. And just do what we need to do to keep our boss happy. To keep our employer satisfied. Well that does us no good before Christ. Who we're really working for. Because he sees our hearts. This is strong medicine in a place like Washington D.C. I used to work as a. A staffer in many different roles as a congressional staffer at a federal agency. And when you're, when you're a staffer and you're responsible for serving a boss, you know, there, depending on your position in a congressional office, you might actually have like responsibility to follow him around and carry his bag for the day or drive him to the airport or whatever the case may be. It's a very, it's sort of the closest thing we can get to slavery in Washington, D.C., right in the 21st century. Like you have to follow him and do whatever he says. And you're an at will employee, you can be fired. For having the wrong look on your face. And so it's easy in those roles to do whatever it takes to please the boss. To keep him happy. And then when we think about, well, you know, what if my boss doesn't win re-election? I need a job in another office. And the world of DC networking, right? We want to constantly be eye-pleasers, people-pleasers. It's a part of the way things go in this city. But when we embrace our work as God's calling and our service of the Lord Jesus Christ... It transforms how we think about what we do, why we are, where we are. And I want to bring this now to the third way. So it it, it transforms our identity. It transforms the character of our calling. And then third and finally, it transforms the, the stuff we do, the character of the work we do. Paul says here, rendering service with a good will, knowing that whatever good... Anyone does any good thing, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. It is God's will to do our work well. All our work is broadly understood as love of neighbor. We are called the two great commandments to love God and love our neighbor. And Martin Luther writes movingly about how our service, our callings in the world, are opportunities for us to love our neighbors, to show neighbor love. If you're in a service industry, you're serving your customers. Maybe you're providing bread for their table. If you're in government, maybe you are loving your neighbors by helping to contribute to a society that is well-ordered. Where there's liberty and freedom for people to pursue and work and for the church to flourish. So the things we do as seemingly inane perhaps, some of the tasks we're given. Maybe we're just making copies as an intern. Maybe we're bringing coffee or refreshments to people doing a different job. Maybe if we're in the military, we're, we're building a bridge or enabling the movement of troops. These are ways that God has called us, not of our own wisdom, but he's put, put us in a place where we can love and serve our neighbors by doing things well. 
So we are called to think of the service we give in the workplace, not just as what we do to get a paycheck, but as a form of neighbor love. And this includes moms and dads. This includes children, students. You're not just learning to get a good career, to get a good job. You're learning to use your brains and your hearts in the service of God to develop all the gifts he has given you to love your neighbor. And even when the power structures and the incentives of this fleshly world, this flesh world are so corrupted. If you hit your target or goal, you'll get a bonus, right? It's easy for the things we do to seem corrupt. The gospel nevertheless gives us a new identity, a new sense of calling and new eyes with which to behold the work we do. So I think that's one of the ways where we can take Paul's instructions here for slaves who were in one of the most debased stations of life. And we're able to transform that into a new form of Christian service. And third and finally, I want to turn to Paul's instructions for Christian masters. Similarly, Paul transforms the identity of the boss, the one who is in charge. He says, do the same to them that I've told them. You want to know how to be a good master? Be a good slave. Incredibly humbling instructions. And the reason this is true is because he says you both have the same master who is in heaven. You're flat. You're level. You're no better than anyone else because of your station in life. And remember that that master, Jesus, became our Lord by becoming a slave to all. Remember the night before he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, he washed the feet of his disciples. And he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me to Peter. You also have a master in heaven, Paul tells the Colossians. And that master in heaven has no partiality. He has been a servant. He has been a slave. Your status on earth means nothing in the kingdom of heaven. We live in a world and a culture, brothers and sisters... Whether we think of it or not, where where there is the elevation of the stature, right, of the Elon Musks or the Jeff Bezos, the billionaires, the successful people who rule their industrial kingdoms. We live in a city that idolizes the success of political heroes, people who have risen to a stature. Paul says, your master in heaven shows no partiality. He reorients the work of the supervisor in the light of their savior. They too are called and are able to love their neighbor, the slave, the servant, the employee in their service. And he says this relationship is not based on power. Stop your threatening. God put you here. You didn't attain this by your own power. You can't retain it by your own power. In Colossians Paul uses this language, which we read earlier this morning, For one, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, remember the context of these instructions for slaves and masters. The Spirit creates unity in the body of Christ. Paul is addressing the church. He's not addressing the world. He's not giving us an industrial policy. 
The Spirit creates unity in the body of Christ and maintains that unity. And as he said in 5.15, we're called to walk carefully, to be wise, to maintain and pursue the unity of the body of Christ by being filled with the Spirit. And then he went on to say, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How? How do we do that? Four ways. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Giving thanks always and everywhere. For everything, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And under this submission, he has said, relationships between wives and husbands. Between children and their parents. Between slaves and their masters. Are all forms in which Christians, in the household, in individual homes, submit to one another. Build unity as servants of the one true master in heaven. And support and reinforce the unity within the body of Christ. The unity in the home builds unity in the church. God's purpose here expressed through Paul is that the church would be united. That we would be one. The gospel preserves our worldly relations. As wives, husbands, children, parents. Employees, employers, slaves, masters. It preserves those worldly relations, but radically transforms them all. It reorients them to Christ and to our divine calling and to the new creation, which is coming into existence here in our midst. It motivates us to live out of gratitude. And it gives profound meaning to the service, to all the service we give as it builds the kingdom of God in our midst. One final thing that must be said here, obviously, as we gather as a unified body of Christ... There is remarkable potential for bearing witness to a watching world in the workplace as an employer, a supervisor, as an employee in our homes to bear witness to the unity we have in Christ, that we have one Lord and Savior, that we are all slaves of Christ in his service for he has bought us, delivered us from sin and death. Let's pray. Merciful God. We pray that we might be humbled anew by your word so that we might cast our proud selves down before you and be reminded of the arrogance and the pride with which we take about our earthly stations. Help us to invest not in worldly treasure, not in building storehouses down here below, but help us to invest in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust can destroy our true eternal inheritance. Lord, draw our eyes up to heaven where Christ is seated. Where we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And bless us this day and this week as we go forth from this place. Seeking to live in the light of that heavenly inheritance. And give us comfort and peace in the light of our sins and your goodness to us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.